News of the incident spread, and whenever frames were sabotaged, people would jokingly say, Ned Ludd did it. Oh, he was the Sam Hyde of his day, huh? He was. <laughs> <laughs> he can't keep getting away with it. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. It's very creative, I know. I'm your host, Naren C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good after evening, whatever time you know, of day it is. You know what? With you being a married man and all, should we be calling you Mr. George? I don't think that's how that works. Oh, uh, it has a nice ring to it, though. Mr. George. Well, you know, when I... Graduated college, one of my professors told me that he would finally use Mr. with my last name. He'd just been calling me by my last name for four years. Are you like Mario? Your first name is George and your last name is George? Mario Mario? Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> Mr. George George. <laughs> we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events of the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, especially on today's episode, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who are we covering this time on the podcast? Today, we have a man who may not have actually existed. Actually, as far as historians are concerned, he almost definitely didn't exist. Like, I haven't read this. I don't know who we're talking about, but I already believe he existed. Okay, see, that's where we're going to run it. <laughs> well, some people say that this guy was a total fabrication. Ancient astronaut theorists say no. <laughs> but total fabrications are, of course, about par for this podcast. Now, before you shut off the episode, dear listener, just because this guy might not have been or not be real in any way, it doesn't mean the story won't have value. For those of you who have been listening with us for a while, you will remember that my William Tell one-man show where I attempted to demonstrate the value of cultural icons, whether or not they had any physical existence or not, it, uh, you know, let's might... let's Let's place the emphasis on attempted. Well, it ended up being really fun for me, and uh, I've heard a lot of people really liked it. You know, I liked it too, because I wasn't there. I was enjoying... I don't know, I'll be real, probably sitting alone in my apartment and staring at a wall, but it was probably a better experience, to be honest. Listen, smartass, that episode was awesome, and I don't mind saying so, because it was a labor of love, and I proved to myself that I could do this without being burdened by your pedantic chaff. Really had to pull up the thesaurus for that one, didn't you? Well, you're on mm -hmm. thin, thin, thin ice here, buddy. Remember what happened to the last co-host who got married on the show? Maybe I'll just... Disappear, never to be seen again. Are you threatening me? My lawyers have advised me not to answer that question. But yes, <laughs> yes, I am threatening you. <laughs> and what would this podcast be without threats of violence and frequent references to terrorism? Emasculated, soyish, and ultimately meaningless. Well, that's my point exactly. And speaking of terrorism, should we grab the script arena, get on the old lift arena, and head down to the history lab arena? Please never use any of those words again. But I will, <laughs> I will forbear. I will forbear. In honor of our topic this fine after evening, Ned Ludd, who, as I'm sure 
any man on the street knows, hated machines, it seems to me that we shouldn't be using an elevator to get down to the history lab. I suggest, in true Luddite spirit, that we, may Allah forgive me for uttering these words, take the stairs. <laughs> do, wait a second, do we even have stairs? Is this place not up to code? Because I'm pretty sure, according to literally every building code since, like, the Roman Empire, we're required to have a stairwell. Well, wait a second, though, because like, now I'm getting kind of meta, because on this show, before we get on the elevator and go down to the history lab like every other time, like, where are we actually in this very moment, according to the official We Talk About Dead People lore? Like, I mean, this is our green room, sure, but is it just a room? Or are we in, like an abandoned corner store somewhere or a forgotten mansion could we be on some sort of celestial waiting room before we descend to earth ancient astronaut theorists say yes honestly <laughs> though like if my money is on a denny's i think we're in a denny's <laughs> the big the big denny's in the sky but well, in any case i mean i don't know <laughs> the convoluted details of your delusional headcanon about where we are. You're the one who writes this nonsense. I'm just along for the ride. Well, okay, so, like, if we're going to stick with official We Talk About Dead dead People lore, we did have a pub installed here on, like, the third episode or something, so I'm assuming that must mean we're in some kind of building, so... A building, presumably, that has water and or power hookups as well, unless this is the world's worst pub, and it's just like a dive bar on a street corner or floating in some sort of cosmic ether. It's like that song, The Pub With No Beer. <laughs> the podcast with no content. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, welcome to the podcast, California, over here. Yeah. Well, it's, it really does feel like we should make some sort of a decision on this, because we've been doing this for five years, and I've actually not ever once thought about what the so-called surface actually is. And it's starting to make me think it's like, it is a Denny's trapped in a pocket dimension, and like, we may actually be trapped here, forced by the Demiurge to research history for all eternity as a like a divine test of will. <laughs> Unrelated, but did you have Howdy on again recently? Just... Random, my guts random thought <laughs> not nothing to do with what you said oh of course not but my gut says that there are stairs behind this bookshelf here do you see this bookshelf that i'm imagining with my brain oh look manifestation a bookshelf literally just appeared behind you i manifested a bookshelf yeah apparently <laughs> you did and let me guess it's going to dramatically creak on its long dry hinges and swing open to reveal a dark descent to the history lab Ooh. yeah yeah well let's just see i'm gonna pull on this obnoxiously large book here and yep that's a stairway wait a minute what even is that book you've been holding out on me you have a you have a set of the polyvasova Encyclopedia of the Ancient World. Do you know how long I've been dumpster diving in academic libraries looking for one of those? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you piece of shit. Give me that. <laughs> yeah, you can take it. Honestly, I should just leave now. It sounds sounds like it'd be a better afternoon sitting on a park bench perusing the wisdom of the Polyvasova than it would be going down that stairwell, which honestly looks kind of like the parking garage near my apartment building and kind of smells like it too 
Budget's tight. You you manifested it. <laughs> this stairwell is representative of your own frail and <laughs> detritus-ridden consciousness. <laughs> what do you well, expect from a podcaster? Yeah, well, we get a, we might as well go down this piece of shit before the pocket dimension closes, and I wouldn't want to get trapped here in the in-between between the cosmic demiurge Denny's and the history lab or the parking garage or anyway let's go yep let's let's do it this is the first time taking the stairs so let's just put our best foot forward here we go (laughs) one man the textile industry and unacceptable working conditions this is the tale of one who stood up and sounded a mighty yawp over the rooftops of the world. Or did he? Join us as we investigate the legend of Ned Ludd and the anti-industrial rebellion that arose during what is observably one of the biggest changes in the world. The very one that caused the industrialization of war, trade, and virtually everything the modern man knows. Which, I'm just going to throw out there, has been a disaster for the human race. Hold up! I need to track my steps, being an office drone and all. (laughs) That was literally like one floor. Every bit counts in the world of corn syrup and seed oils. Don't forget the microplastics and phytoestrogens. You know, and speaking of microplastics and possibly hot pockets, it turns out that, uh... This magical staircase led me directly to the closet I found you posting memes in when you first joined the show. What a memory! That's weird. I don't remember taking any stairs to get here. Come to think of it, I don't even remember how I got here in the first place. Last thing I remembered before I was confronted with your grim and gruesome visage was I was actually in a Protestant church of all places, in the social hall using their kitchen to bake pretzels, and then suddenly you were there, and there was a mad trapper, and things got really weird. Well, um, maybe now that we've noticed this surface is a dimensional pocket, we'll see more anomalies like this. I truly and sincerely hope not. This whole meta bit is already getting kind of cringe. All right, you're right. So let's pretend this never happened. So, George, if you had to astrally project yourself into an abandoned department store circa 1990, which store would you pick, and how would you defend yourself against the squiggly jump scare monster? The squiggly jump scare monster? Really? They already ruined the back rooms. They've always got to add a jump scare monster. The whole point of those liminal space closed shopping mall horror games is that you never actually are supposed to see the monster. And you found out eventually that you are the monster. And then Reddit kids ruined it by making these stupid ass jump scare monsters. On principle, I should refuse to answer this question. Um, I don't know, probably a GameStop. There you go. <laughs> but I, but how would you... F- no fighting the squiggly jump scare monster? Just going to pretend that doesn't exist? If, by some unrelated series of events, there was a squiggly jump scare monster, I would simply disarm his hostility by telling him about what a great economic opportunity is to invest in GameStop shares before the whole uh, Wall Street bets thing from three years ago. That's the, really smart. To the moon that, and back. Yeah, Emphasis that's really smart. Back. 
taking 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 advantage of the fact that I put 1990 in the not script. That's brilliant. I'm too dumb to have come up with that. I would have said like a department store. Um, I'd go to a Kmart for sure because I think they were still playing the the ambient music back then that wasn't just pop over and over again. Uh, I'd p definitely pick a Kmart. Have to be at night. Half the lights need to be out. Um, janitors will have had to already have gone home. And to defend myself against the squiggly Kmart jump scare monster, um, I think I'd definitely go to a Kmart with like a little Caesars built into it, because that's what they had around me when I was a kid. There was a little Caesars in the back. Uh, and I would tempt him with the smell of crazy bread. You know, I've never actually eaten at a little Caesars. You would love it. I'm stunned you haven't. It's five dollars for a pizza. The crazy bread is delicious. It's well, like okay, your wait, kind of place. Walk, walk me through this. What? Wait, wait, wait. What? Do, what does that mean? <laughs> what? <laughs> that mean it's my kind of place. It's cheap <laughs> and they give you carbs. <laughs> what are you implying? <laughs> I'm just taking. I, it's called pattern detection. All right. You <laughs> took your new wife to a sheets for God's sake. Look, that was for White Monster, which doesn't have carbs. <laughs> that's true, I guess. But, nah, that's probably enough banter. Computer, wait, 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 please wait, wait, wait. You can't, you, can't, you can't introduce these things and not follow through. What is crazy bread? Okay, you don't know what... Okay, so crazy bread is just like garlic bread. But it's like crazy good. So they call it crazy bread. I think they do. Hold on, let me double check. I don't even know they still sell crazy bread. Hold on. Yeah, Little Caesars Crazy Bread. You have got to go to a Little Caesars, dude. I will send you ten dollars to go get yourself a pizza <laughs> and a pack of a pack of Crazy Bread. <laughs> Can we move on now? <laughs> I suppose so. The, the thought of that will give me something to tide me over through the immense duration of this podcast. Yeah, it's gonna be a long one. So, computer, please bring up Ned Ludd. Affirmative, my lord. There we go. So, George, what spectral vision do you see before you? Is he wearing a dress? I think he's wearing a dress. <laughs> so I see a man in a dress. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a brown and blue polka dot deal. Looks very, very 19th century, maybe, like, I don't know. It looks like Victorian pajamas, honestly. Um... And he's got, like, a red bandana thing going on around his neck, which symbolism probably means he's some sort of revolutionary. He's got a hat with these weird little ribbons that make it look kind of like that one Pokemon. Tentacruel, I think. Um, he is wearing orange under the dress. He has one shoe. Um... <laughs> He's got striped socks, one of which is torn up, so we can see half his toes. Um, he is holding a spike, it looks like, of some variety. Either that or a microphone, <laughs> but I'm guessing it's a spike. <laughs> um, and he, he uh, seems to be gesturing some gesture of command. Uh, and there are many sort of angry, rabble-looking people in the background also waving spikes and pitchforks and there's a, a burning factory it looks like in the back which I'm I'm all about and there's some little man in orange trying to prevent the angry spike people from 
doing whatever it is they're planning on doing. But this all in the background. The foreground is very much the man in the polka dot dress with the microphone. Uh, who has a kind of a weird perspective. He's just, the way his body's twisted is very weird for, for uh, an image. He's like turned to the side, but his head is looking to the other side of the picture. Um, he's also got a very strange set of facial hair. Mm -hmm. It's like there's a beard that grows on the back of his head and is trying to come around the sides and smother <laughs> him. Yeah. Um, he looks like a neck beard a little bit. This isn't even and the neck beard. Like, that beard is, like, fully behind his ears and coming, <laughs> coming around. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's a wild-looking... This is a wild this depiction of this person. Uh... Yeah, he's he's definitely got feminine garb on. I don't know how else to say that. And no one else in the picture is wearing this. It's not like this is some kind of uniform. But he's clearly wearing a dress and a scarf and a lady's hat with a ribbon on it. Um, yeah, this is the best picture I could find, apparently. A drawing. I'm trying to, I'm trying to read what it... Uh, drawn from life by an officer. Drawn from life by an officer. So this is actually, allegedly, what he looked like. This is apparently a, a first-hand depiction, yes. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Indeed. So if, if this is to be believed, this is actually the closest picture of what this guy actually looked like, which is just crazy. So. Anyway. Should we begin? We should. Are we going to find out why he's wearing the dress? Probably. It's alluded to, but there's no proof that this is actually <laughs> Don't what... Don't you mean alluded to? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> that was disgusting, and you should. we should censor ourselves for that. I'm going to call Spotify and get us a, a bad pun tag next to the COVID tags. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> let's begin. So... Now, let's start another episode where we will barely talk about the namesake of the episode, Ned Ludd. Those are my favorite. <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah, so this isn't because I'm addicted to context or anything. It's because there's not that much about Ned Ludd himself anywhere that I could find in abundance or consistently. I even went and asked Big Brain Chat GPT where I could find more information on the guy, and this silly robot produced nothing useful! I'm so surprised it research. didn't just make something up. It did. Well, it tried. That's the thing. But all it came up with was what basically was available on Wikipedia. Um, did you see that, uh, that Chat GPT uh, lawyer story? No. Some lawyer had Chat GPT write a brief for him, and it referenced a bunch of cases as precedent and he asked chat gpt you can see the screenshot are those real cases and it was like oh yeah and it like gave references that you could look it up in you know this database and whatnot none of them were real it just made up a bunch of cases and then lied to him that they were real and gave fake citations <laughs> and which could have worked <laughs> he's now facing a professional censure oh my god <laughs> Well, I guess there's two jobs that aren't being taken by AI anytime soon. That is lawyering and researching vague historical figures for a silly podcast. So I guess that's score one for the Republic. If you're hearing that sound, that means it's time. It's time to discuss patrons. 
That's right. If you're a current patron of the show, you get your call out starting now. And we will begin with our highest highest patronage level, which is the Time Monarchs. In this case, the Time Kings, as there's only two of them, and I assume both of them are male. Our first Time Monarch... Well, first of all, I should activate the Time Monarch button. Hold on. Yes, here they come in all their glory, finally! Once again, our Time Monarchs march in proudly to take their seats at the Golden Thrones of the Time Kings. We only have two, as I have said. There is Jacob, who is contributing a hundred dollars a month to the show, which is incredible, and I still don't understand why, but goddamn are we grateful for it. Jacob keeps the lights on, and he carries the weight of many, many shovel bearers. I don't think he's ever going to have to pay the ferryman. He's definitely paid his way. <laughs> and our second Time King, of course, is Adam, who contributes 50 a month to the show, and they're both taking their seats on their thrones. Right now, they look fantastic. Jacob, you're glowing. Adam, you're glowing quite nicely, too, but not as, like, half as much. <laughs> Everybody needs to applaud these two because they have held strong with us through the marriage, the wedding, and all of that waiting, and they keep the show going. If you would like to contribute to our show, remember, we are also on Locals, because I know some of y'all out there who are savvy don't like Patreon. But in the meantime, thank you, thank you to our Time Kings. It did try to tell me that Madison was the second president, too. So that's that's just, unfortunate. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> Humans stay winning. <laughs> anyway, so the long, the long, the short version of the long way of the long short of it is that it's hard to find material on this guy, which is why Ned Ludd is considered what amounts to an urban legend. However, like. William Tell, he was an urban legend with a lot of power. And in the chaos of the first Industrial Revolution, it isn't entirely inconceivable that there was an actual Ned Ludd who got erased from history because nobody who knew him wrote anything can, down. Can I stop you there for a second? Stop me. So, I've read something about uh, about William Tell recently. That oh did, no. Did, did you know that he was a professional bowler? No. But we don't know what... what uh, team he played on so you could say that we don't know for whom to tell bulls all right that's in a that's officially a bad pun tag i'm going to have to call spotify and apple podcasts that and just so everyone knows that wasn't scripted he just <laughs> he just pulled that out of his ass and <laughs> someone texted me that last night and i've been waiting for oh. the opportunity to tell you <laughs> Okay, well, so it was a little bit scripted. It's fine. <laughs> ah! All right, we'll get through discussing this figure in a little bit. We'll get to we'll get to Ned Ludd after we uh, greedily snort a thick line of contact for a hundred dollar <laughs> bill, courtesy of our supporters on Locals Patreon and Ven Venmo. I need to start reading ahead in the dot script so I don't don't do it. You're because <laughs> that that really that that caught me in the middle of a drink of water and I almost lost it. Well, if you spit water on that brand new microphone, I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> I was cheap. I did not get you the lifetime warranty or whatever, so you watch the sputtering, okay? <laughs> there's a, so, lot, there's a uh, lot riding on this pop filter right now. Yeah, it's the shield that's protecting the mic from 
from Giant Wit. My god, this is a brand new shirt, it's already got a hole in it. I should sue. Anyway, <clears throat> so listeners, prepare yourselves for a high-flying, bird's-eye-view journey into the chaos of the first industrial revolution. Because that's the only way we can actually make an episode about Ned Ludd, but the industrial revolution just feels right after doing the French Revolution. So, <clears throat> the first industrial revolution was mainly about four major inventions. Uh, there were, I'm sorry, innovations. There were innovations in textiles, steam power, iron making, and the invention of milling machines, and other more complicated tools that would make smaller, less complicated tools. For example, the screw lathe, which made making screws not only more uniform, but faster and easier. Now, <clears throat> just imagine with me, though. Let's really rewind the, the history here. Just, just try to try to put yourself in the shoes of a human being prior to industrialization. I'm just gonna say the guy in the picture only had one shoe. He did. He did only have one shoe. What's your point? We should put ourselves in the shoe. Uh, of the person. You're in a prior. mood. You're, you're, you're reverberating dad energy already. Did you? Have you been? Are, are you doing that Catholic thing where like in nine months you're gonna have like a couple of kids or something? Serious uh, dad energy. Put it this way. I'm not I'm not aware of any children at the moment. <laughs> not yet? Okay. <laughs> Except for the other guy on the other end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> for millennia, man got his food directly from soil he tilled and wild beasts he hunted. Nature itself was a constant threat in many ways, either through bad weather, predators, disease, etc., Clothing was made from animal skins, hygiene was washing your face in a river, and the law was basically what you could get away with without getting caught. And it still is, don't tell anybody. Life was a constant struggle, but not in that TikTok, I have anxiety because I drink three coffees a day sort of struggle. It was life and death all the time with very few real breaks. Leisure was a thing for like warlords. Travel was non-existent for most people, beyond about 50 square miles at the most. God, I wish that was me. Yeah, right. Everything you wanted or needed, you had to work for, usually in fairly dangerous conditions. At least difficult conditions. And this is just how it was for pretty much most of humanity's, humanity's existence after the fall of Atlantis. Ah, <laughs> uh, lost Lemuria. I'm just going to throw shit in there like that. Don't take that seriously. Now, <clears throat> uh, except it's true. Uh, nah. All right, now people don't know if I'm joking or not. I'm joking, all right? I don't know if Atlantis fell. He is neither joking nor serious, but a secret third thing. Yeah, what What would that be? It's secret, dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine you pluck a person out of this kind of life and tell them that they will soon be able to live in a house that the wind can't penetrate, get almost any kind of food they could want from a local store, drive a horseless vehicle hundreds of miles by merely applying some foot pressure to a little pedal, and even someday argue with racists on the internet using their thumbs. Most people would take that deal in an instant. Wouldn't they, George? Presumably. Yes. For the average person, invention was a necessity for survival. Basic things like wheels and common tools were necessary to keep people alive. The idea of invention beyond necessity was reserved for a few weirdos who had a touch of the tism, at least until one ran into a technologically superior opponent in a war. 
The arms race for new technology is a tale as old as time, and it's one that continues today, especially in the digital space. But this arms race only caught humanity's notice when it became impossible to ignore its effects, and when a large part of humanity rather suddenly became dependent on industry. The first industrial revolution began between the 1760s and the 1780s. It is generally accepted that it began with the textile industry, which was an early adopter of mechanized processes of production. But it wasn't just like one day people woke up and bam, industrial society! It was more like a slow burn until everybody woke up one day and bam, industrial society! An invention would happen here, an innovation there, but then all of a sudden, people were living in a completely different kind of reality. Honestly, though, the invention of the moldboard plow completely revolutionized medieval agriculture. I've just got to throw that out there. Thank you for throwing that in there. <laughs> if you think of any more inventions that I've left out because we didn't even talk about the Middle Ages, uh, feel free to chime in at any point. I mean, the domestication of horses, like six or seven thousand years ago that was a really big deal that was huge pretty smart really and actually <clears throat> that's a great way to segue into discussing the revolution that became that came before the industrial revolution which was the agricultural revolution now oh, hey look at look at that we're, we're going all in on the context i'm i'm we, here for it it's all connected i've got my red yarn up on the wall already so the agricultural revolution took place in the Neolithic period around 12,000 years ago. So that should give you an idea of how long humans had been planting and harvesting and hunting as a complete way of life. That's how they got you. Agriculture. Mm -hmm. Agriculture. Throughout all the empire building, wars, and other historical events, the method of producing food remained pretty much unchanged. We tilled the earth, planted seeds, added a little water and sunshine, excuse me, and finally harvested the fruits of our labor. The time clock was the sun, moon, and stars, and the break room was a hut in the middle of a forest for thousands of years. Can you imagine how much the guy who decided to try the whole agriculture thing got made fun of? Like, yeah. everybody else is out there going to hunt mammoths and stuff, but he's just, like, burying plants. It's like, oh yeah, there's Todd with his farm. <laughs> Let's go kill a mammoth. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and speaking very generally... Uh, for workers, especially in the Middle Ages, pay was doled out in the form of protection, privileges, and food. Money could be involved, but for many peasants, <clears throat> money wasn't for them or it was otherwise mostly irrelevant. During the Middle Ages, the average pay in actual money, if any was involved at all, amounted to roughly $400 a year. And that was used pretty much exclusively to pay taxes or tithe. Sip. The quality of life for most workers was very low by modern standards. European people specifically lived in wattle and daub shacks on the land, ate pork if they could get it, vegetables and black bread, almost exclusively. Sometimes they even had to bring their animals into their shacks to protect them from the elements because they didn't have barns yet. Um, but the deal made sense, in a way. Money wasn't for peasants or serfs. Their livelihood was their labor and their output. And while it could be a little stretched to straight up call them slaves, it wasn't exactly the same kind of relationship, so I will not be calling them that. Good. We'd be, we'd yeah. be having a long discussion. I, I We're not going to. literally just taught a whole class in the early Middle Ages, so we'd be having a <clears> long <throat> discussion, and this, this show's going to be long enough as it is, so I appreciate your forbearance. Yes, and I appreciate you supporting this, because that's it's not fair to call it the same thing. Anyway, so <clears throat> as things improved for Europeans around the 1200s, 
the best an aspiring peasant or low-class member of society could hope for was to work their way up into becoming something like an artisan, like a weaver, a potter, a cooper, blacksmith, or some other such skilled labor. But acquiring such skills required training, and the privilege of following around an artisan or tradesman as an apprentice presented some barriers. But even this development of the trade path was extremely rare. Not extremely rare, that's too big of a word. Was rare-ish in the Middle Ages. But gradually, as the years went by and the European tribes began to coalesce and develop into nations, one began to see guilds pop up everywhere. Guild systems began to appear in the 1200s and became ubiquitous institutions in the 1300s, pretty much from Barcelona to Berlin. Artisans from these guilds produced most everyday commodities people would use in cities. Economies that ran exclusively on money, not barter, began to grow because people were now selling their things for money. They weren't just trading them around. And at a certain class level, bartering and trading physical items sort of became a thing that was basically just for peasants. The money economy and the people who managed to climb aboard were insulated from many of the dangers of the natural world. It's what allows people with money to become, quote-unquote, out of touch. And this is where I have to, I have to get into the, uh, the social phenomenon of industrialization and uh, the social phenomenons of money economies growing, basically, because it's really, really related to uh, the Ned Ludd story. <clears throat> so this natural detachment historically man manifests itself first in simple luxuries and conveniences. Having that baseline infrastructure of necessities taken care of so societies can flourish in other ways than mere subsistence allowed the nations of Europe to focus on other things like science, technology, medicine, and other benefits that come with civilizational progress. And I don't mean Europe exclusively, but we're talking about it in the context of Ned Ludd, who, you know, was European. <clears throat> anyway, that's the idea, um, is that we're gonna, we've got, we've taken care of the food, we've taken care of the clothes, now we can, like, research things, and George can have a job at a university. <laughs> that's the idea. So, as long as the moneyed people could keep their eye on the ball and retain at least the illusion of operating on a moral framework, they could and sometimes would do some good for the little guy. Usually, secondarily, he was doing something else that looked cool and the public just happened to get like a really cool bridge out of it. Something like that. Is uh, this, are you tracking with this? Days. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about how... Just how terribly our elites suck now. Like, the class of people we refer to as the robber barons did so much more public works than our modern elites who are drastically and dramatically richer than the robber barons could ever have dreamed of. And they're not building libraries and parks and all this stuff. They're literally no. just sitting on their yachts, tenting their fingers while they stare at their the Vermeers and Picassos on the walls. It's not a good situation, is it? <laughs> no. Let's, so at the end stages of luxury, actually, to continue, uh, you see a sort of madness evolve within the consciousness of the upper class. Often they devolve into decadence in the forms of, you know, abhorrent licentiousness of the worst kind, uh, absolute and complete legal privilege. Nothing ever happens to them. And they also get like a strange obsession with magic and literal devilry. Uh, Rome, Tsarist Russia, the French Ancien Regime, and even the American upper class of today have been accused of declining into such things. 
Because it's all well and good to be rich enough to have the freedom to think and entertain new philosophies and ideas, but if it goes unchecked and unbalanced, it can go off the tracks, and before you know it, Bazaar is a wizard, maple syrup is racist, and the family horse has been nominated senator. And now I'm going to ask you to pull out your academic hat for me, because we're going to see Ovid. <laughs> we're going to talk about Ovid, the great Roman poet. Did you get a chance to look at Metamorphosis before this? Um, I did, but I thought you were going to be giving me quotes in Latin, so I was like, I was, I was <laughs> ready for like live translating. But I see you put it here in English, so my my preparations were for naught. My uh, well, if you have Latin, you'd like to read, you know, say to us. Everyone likes the sound of Latin. That's fun. No, there are literally two things in this apartment right now. One of which is my computer and microphone setup. The other of which we won't talk about, but you know what it is. There are no books yet, so I do not have any of my Latin texts accessible. Fair enough. So let's pretend I'm, I'm saying this in Latin. How about that? Everyone can pretend they know Latin all of a sudden? Magically, I am teaching you, or you're, you're, you're learning Latin through George's enormous brain right now. He's I was going to say this is very... This is Aaron's Protestantism coming out. He's going to be speaking in tongues, and we're all going to understand it in English, even though he's actually speaking it in Latin. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly what's going to happen. I was going to assume it was your cat flick magic and incense that was going to help them understand it, but <laughs> let's, uh, let's, get, let's get right down to it. So <clears throat> Ovid was a Roman poet who produced an epic known as Metamorphosis, the book, or Metamorphoses. Uh, the first book in this work contains a description of the ages that mankind cycles through in history, which I love. I love historical cycles uh, and people who write them down because they get it more than somebody who, who just knows a bunch of dates and is like, yes, and then in 1811, this happened. If you can zoom out far enough and see cycles, like, I consider you a historical wizard, which is great. So, Ovid said that there was the golden, silver, bronze, and iron ages, each producing different kinds of men. Here's a bit about the bronze and iron age, uh, translated from Metamorphoses. Should I read it in an ancient voice? I should, and I'm going to mark it because I'm going to drop in some weird music to go with this. <laughs> 3740. Ovid. No, I'm going to write C. Ovid. <laughs> oh, I'm having too much fun. <clears throat> The Third Age followed, called the Age of Bronze, when cruel people were inclined to arms, but not to impious crimes. And last of all, the ruthless and hard Age of Iron prevailed, from which malignant vein great evil sprung, and modesty and faith and truth took flight, and in their stead deceits and snares and frauds and violence and wicked love of gain succeeded. Then the sailor spread his sails to winds unknown, and keels that had long stood on lofty mountains pierced uncharted waves. Surveyors anxious marked with meets and bounds the lands, created free as light and air. Nor need the rich ground furnish only crops and give due nourishment by right required. They penetrated to the bowels of earth and dug up wealth, bad cause of all our ills. Rich ores which long ago the earth had hid and deep removed to gloomy Stygian caves. And soon destructive iron and harmful gold were brought to light. 
and war, which uses both, came forth and shook with sanguinary grip his clashing arms. Rapacity broke forth. The guest was not protected from his host, the father-in-law from his own son-in-law. Even brothers seldom could abide in peace. The husband threatened to destroy his wife, and she, her husband. Horrid stepdames mixed the deadly henbane. Eager sons inquired their fathers. Ages, piety was slain, and last of all, the virgin deity, Astraea, vanished from the blood-stained <laughs> bit dramatic <laughs> and I'll just add to that Astraea is a um, goddess who's a personification of justice mm-hmm mm-hmm and also what that, did you notice about this passage that uh th that comma that comma ruined one of my favorite lines where after fathers it's oh. eager sons inquired their father's ages it's like yeah dad's getting pretty old uh be a pity if something were to happen to him and we were to get to inherit all his stuff. Oh my god, I'm so glad you pointed that out. I just thought I wasn't understanding the, the yeah, yeah, context that, that, of it. Yeah, yeah, that comma is a intrusion. Because yeah, that's the, to me that's one of the funniest lines. Eager sons inquired their father's ages. Mm-hmm. That's so good. So here, here <clears throat> do you want to point anything else you noticed? Um, well, I would say that uh, the sort of important takeaway is that we are living in the age of iron, which is, in this cosmology, objectively, the worst and most lawless age. Yeah. Yeah, it's something like the Kali Yuga, a little bit. Yep, definitely. Um, now, I would point out a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the sailor spread his sails to winds unknown and keels that long had stood on lofty mountains pierced uncharted waves. So there's exploration involved. But there's also surveyors marking out borders, um, which, you know, is, is what was happening around this time. I mean, borders were in constant flux for the most part. But when did people really start getting into, like, okay, this is France now? Was that, like, what, what, what era did that happen? I mean, they always had borders, but, like, when was it established, like, the world we're living in now? Um... Really, in the 19th century, our modern idea of borders, because in the mm -hmm. through the medieval world, borders are more or less defined by, okay, who is the lord of this land, and then to which higher authority is he a vassal? So it's like, okay, we are in the land of the Duke of such and such, and he's a vassal of the King of France. So I guess technically we're in France. Um, but right. the idea of the of nations having very specific, marked out, static borders is definitely a really a a result of the post enlightenment really the 19th century right so this is you know again we're in the iron age here's here's another actual point here so they penetrated to the bowels of earth and dug up wealth rich ores which long ago the earth had hid and deep removed to gloomy stygian caves that's also what was going on in the industrial revolution mining went crazy absolutely crazy and, uh, and I actually want to just take one step back to about that um, marking with meets and bounds one of the big backgrounds to the industrial revolution in England that had been happening through the 16 and 1700s was the demarcation and privatization of what had been viewed as common 
lands. Um, that was it. That was actually the biggest sort of social issue for hundreds of years in England was the attempts by the elites to gain exclusive rights over what had traditionally been common use lands. Right. I'm glad you pointed that out because I nearly forgot that. <clears throat> um, the other thing, other point I wanted to make was the spe specificity of iron and gold. Um, and then how war uses them both. Because the ultimate end of the Industrial Revolution, as we all know, is the industrialization of war. And World War I was the absolute... I don't want to say peak of that, because World War II is obviously big too. I mean, we're still living with this, right? Um, it's just, those are the most obvious examples. It means the Civil War was highly industrialized. Um, there, this is... This is one of the, the truest things I've ever read, and it came from a Roman poet. Which is not that uncommon, I guess, for me. Oh, yeah, no, the, the ancients were not stupid. No, they weren't, and pe I think people are starting to figure that out these days. So anyway, it is a very dramatic passage, um, but it illustrates the point I'm trying to make here. Luxury and wealth are a form of downfall, according to many ancient thinkers, including Jesus food for thought. So, we could characterize the times leading up to the Industrial Revolution as being a bit of a Bronze Age, and as Ovid warned, the Bronze Age precedes the Iron Age, and that's when things get crazy. Again, the Industrial Revolution was happening during the madness of the French and American revolutions. It was an era of tremendous change. <clears throat> It certainly was Britain leading the charge in the industrial front. Not by far, but they were up ahead of everyone else because everyone had their eyes on their these new developments and they were mostly coming from Britain and America, but mostly Britain. Machines that could do the job of ten men in half the time. Magnificent inventions that ran on their own like magic. One would soon see great constructs of steel and steam pulling railway cars that had been previously pulled by draft horses. Jungles of moving metal that wove factory-fresh clothing, billowing smokestacks from blast furnaces, whirring, hissing machines, stamping uniform parts for other machines. To the middle and lower class, this was all very ominous, though impressive, mystifying, and thrilling. No one could reliably predict where this would be going. There was indeed no way to imagine the change that was about to sweep through Europe and America. The story of the world was changing from man surviving in nature to man dominating nature. The conquest of other lands and other people had been nearly completed, and the conquest of nature itself had begun. Man, especially educated man, began to see himself as a really big deal. The writings of Darwin celebrating man's evolution into being king of the planet became wildly popular on the back of this changing human story. The Industrial Revolution coincided with the development of what was once called science fiction and later science fiction. Writers and artists dreamed about the wonders they might expect to see within their lifetimes now that man had nature by the throat. The development of scientism came naturally. It was the belief that through the power of science, man could solve all of humanity's ills and would eventually take his place amongst the stars as a galaxy-conquering human force. This was, of course, tied up with all sorts of old-fashioned ideas like destiny, but masked with a new, fancier-sounding word, or words, like biological obligation or will to live. 
Any comment on that? I am pondering. We've moved through history very fast here. My my yes. slow brain doesn't always uh, doesn't always keep up. Um, destiny. Yeah, it became the destiny of man that we were gonna use our technology to basically win. I it's, mean, beat everything. It's interesting because the sort of the corollary is also and in many cases a diminution of a more traditional idea of destiny you know in a Christian religious worldview of man's sort of role in creation and his destined place as God's highest creation created in the image and likeness of God to enjoy salvation as secularism starting at the, the same time in the enlightenment period attacked that you got a sort of replacement destiny where uh well what you're talking about of man as sort of the uh the ruler of creation instead of simply as the highest of god's creation and the caretaker of it sort of swapping out one more individual destiny for this much grander almost sort of cosmic will to power destiny yeah it's a subtle change on paper but I'm sure you've noticed that uh, many of our elites frequently are not interested in religion, and if they're interested in spirituality, it's usually of the devilish kind. Uh, I think when you start to confuse yourself for the ruler of this realm, this kind of this kind of stuff happens, and it's it's tragic to look at it, really. Um, Especially when you really think about the implications of such things, but we can get back on track unless you had more you'd like to say. No, no. Let us let us proceed. So we're we're going through this rather I don't know, evocatively. I'm avoiding talking about individual inventions and what this guy did to perfect the other one. I mean we do a little bit of that later on, but I'm trying to give the listener a broad scope of like the the moral meaning of all of this um, even dare I say the spiritual meaning of all of this um, all of this development became like a coming soon to DVD sort of preview the promise of this high tech future was a high was like it was a high the western world was gonna ride pretty much up until today and still ongoing like we have not untaken the psilocybin that is industrialization we're still tripping balls right now but the difference is, as we can all see now, the rockets are for rich people, um, and we probably didn't go to the moon anyway, so, you know, there's that. <laughs> there's people always are starting that. To get so yeah, there's always that. But it's, it's like people are, we're kind of like in the machine stops where we're like, well, okay, we can get anything we want, and everything's taken care of, and we're coddled, and except we're not we're kind of hated by the people who are providing these services to us so it's just a very weird place to be um but let's get back to the history so in warlike societies or societies that practiced uh, large-scale warfare mass production of commonplace items was necessary to continue the expansion of the nations in war and trade these mechanical creations chugged along producing other goods and occasionally swallowing a child laborer as payment to the saturnian cube but in America, the new machines came into demand very, very quickly. The mining operations that were opening up 
all along the East Coast expanded rapidly in the 1800s, mimicking the already monstrous mining efforts occurring in England. Mining towns sprang up everywhere, lasted as long as the mine produced, and then became ghost towns or future Walmart parking space as soon as they didn't. Again. <laughs> now I'm going to get weird, okay? Can I get weird? Uh, we've oh, been weird on the oh show yes, before. Please, please get weird. So I was just thinking of, I've actually typed around at various abandoned mining towns. Just thinking back to my memories. Here, well, you know. It is an eerie. Have you ever been in an abandoned mining town? I don't think so, no. Oh, it's an eerie vibe. I highly recommend it. Yeah, um, there's definitely going to be more around where you are. Because, um, I mean, in my family, my grandpa and or on one side and great-grandpa, they came from that area, um, and they were just miners. That's just what they did. And then when their town dried up, what are you going to do? I guess the best they could do was move to Indiana, which, you know, I <laughs> recommend against. <laughs> but now I'm going to get weird because I was thinking about this as I was writing this. I was thinking about the dream that I discussed with Howdy. Um, the one about the people, the British people and their pith helmets digging something out of Egypt that gave them power. Some kind of ancient dark secret that turned Britain turned Britain from like a like a, a empire slash... I don't know, something like a, just an island, into this monster. Um, of course, the History Channel has suggested time machines, ancient aliens, spacecraft, zero-point energy devices, and other kooky materialistic things. Um, but I would like to suggest, and this is all hypothesis, or not hypothesis, theoretical, I'd like to suggest something a little more ur urbane, um, that they unearth some kind of method of organizing society. A few tips and tricks from old Pharaoh's handbook, if you take my meaning. This might also explain why the higher-ups are, like, seemingly obsessed, seemingly, are definitely obsessed with Egyptian symbolism. Just watch the halftime show next year. It'll be the same thing, same as it ever was. And at the time of the revolution, and even after the... Uh, after the... Well, yeah, during the revolution and after, Britain and France both seemed to think that Egypt was hiding something pretty important to the point where they were fighting over it for relics and access to its secrets. When Napoleon rousted the Ottomans at the famous Battle of the Pyramids in 1798, he himself cried before the battle, Soldiers, you came to this country to save the inhabitants from barbarism, to bring civilization to the Orient, and subtract this beautiful part of the world from the domination of England. From the top of those pyramids, 40 centuries are contemplating you. So, it's... It's spooky, right? This is something that he said in his pre-battle speech. Forty centuries are watching you. Which, again, very strange vibes from that. And there were great detachments of scientists, archaeologists, and other kinds of wizards tagging along on uh, both French and British expeditions into Egypt. There's actually a, a game recently. Uh, it was an amnesia game where you played as a French woman exploring either the Middle East or Egypt, I can't remember what. Either way, you were digging through, like, old ancient ruins and things, and that is about the, that game gave me about the vibe that I had, um, that I had thinking about how the British and the French treated Egypt. There's just something there they're trying to dig up. And they did, in fact, dig something up. There was discovered in this period the famous Rosetta Stone, which bridged thousands of years of language and offered a peek into the world of hieroglyphics. 
If there was indeed a kind of empire-building field guide, that would now be accessible because of this discovery. Or maybe sim they simply had a concrete example of what their own histories had been referencing for hundreds of years, but again, that's all speculation and tiny, a tiny bit of conspiracy thinking, so I will tap the brakes. Oh ho ho ho! It's time to bring in the lore keepers! Well, we have now currently three lore keepers, and the lore keeper level is $15 a month. And we have exactly three of them, and we're very, very pleased that they're here in our libraries working so studiously to keep this show alive. Whether they channel the information they get through the ether to this show, somehow I feel wiser just having these three around. They are Ray, Spotted Nymph, and Anaxacorgus. Uh, how do you say hello in French? Because I know Anaxacorgus is from the baguette land, Anaxacorgus. Bonjour. <laughs> That's for you. And the other two I know are Americans, so I'll just say what's up. Hey, what's up? <laughs> yes, so everybody, applaud our lore keepers. They are contributing enough to this show to keep the lights on. I'm going to say it over and over again because things are getting tight and giving money to a silly little podcast. I know it doesn't feel like much, but God, it fills my heart with warmth. Did you have a comment you wanted to make? I see your little cursor in here in the not script. Yeah, for, I, ma I made an edit that you just glossed over and read what had been replaced um, anyway. Um, I, but, you fixed it. Yeah, no, I just made it. it I made it hieroglyphs instead of hieroglyphics. And I still said hieroglyphics. And you still said yeah. hieroglyphics. But no, what I would say is, I just, and bear with me, I'll provide a potential counterpoint, not necessarily a counterpoint, to the whole reason for the massive amounts of effort and energy expended on Egyptology is that it's a way of demonstrating status, which is what empires are very, very keen to do. And one way you can do it is militarily, but another way you can do it is culturally. And by doing a better job of excavating important things, showing these amazing discoveries, digging up the past, and doing it better than rivals, you are reinforcing your status as a higher, higher on the, uh, the pyramid, so to speak, of cultural development. And I think that's a big part of what the British and French were doing, is they were trying to outdo each other in everything, and the archaeology was just sort of one avenue by which you could do that. Well, I'm going to crack open a second sparkling water here. Uh, I actually literally brought an ice chest into my recording studio with a frozen chicken to keep the, keep the water cool. <laughs> Do they not have, have any... ice cubes in Wisconsin? <laughs> no, I have ice cubes, but it just seemed it seemed more funny to use a frozen chicken to keep my water cool. Oh, cold. guess guess what I have arriving tomorrow? Hmm. A soda stream so I can make my no! own sparkling water. Because <laughs> my sparkling water budget has just gotten out of control. Yeah. Yeah. Is that actually going to save you some money? Because I was looking at those. Between me and my wife, we're drinking like 12 sparkling waters a day. Uh, yep, that's going to save you some money. <laughs> yeah, so in the, in the long run, it's definitely going to save us some money. I expect a full report, because if I'm going to get a soda stream, it's literally for sparkling water. But I want to also add to what you were saying. I think it could be both. Um, I think it's possible that they were interested in status, 
which is why they literally transported obelisks back to France. Which, of course, um, a long-standing tradition. The Romans transported obelisks back to Rome. Mm-hmm. Like it's yep. a, it shows that. Look how awesome this thing was. It must have been a mighty and powerful civilization that created it, and yet we now have it, which shows that we are even mightier and more powerful. Yes, yes. And I would say that also uh, that would be applicable back then. And also, you know, at this time people were into mysticism and magic like we were talking about with the elite. So they would have people digging through this to dig up the secrets of, uh, you know, of, of Egypt. That sort yeah, of now as someone but, who's actually read m- much of the, the Corpus Hermeticum, it's dreadfully disappointing. It's not nearly mm. as sort of cool as you would expect if you actually read the uh, the esoteric and occult writings from ancient Egypt that have survived. They're really yeah. not. They're really not as good as you would expect. Honestly, they're kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah. You know, hope springs eternal. <laughs> All right. Well, it does. It does feel to me like something was. There was something going on there, and I think it it contributed to this. And also, it's funny. So let me just... (laughs) I have to make my conspiracy jokes. So anyway, let's go back to mass production. Simple tools, clothing, iron, etc. All of this stuff uh, was in high production, which allowed industries to rely on supply chains. The speed at which things could be produced and shipped increased at an exceptional rate. And this speed was always increasing, especially to meet the new demand for prefabricated factory-made items. And I know we just did a big jump there, but I really felt like I wanted to, I wanted to foray into that a little bit. But. Just had to had to tease the mysteries of Egypt. Look, we're 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 not we don't know what we don't know. So for me, it's just fun to explore possibilities. But that's why uh, that's why I, I write for Ancient Aliens and have for ten years now. I I must reveal to you, you have been watching my television show. <laughs> Ancient say yes. I love this running joke. So speed, ease, and cost-effectiveness of production created a new way of life that was centered around factory-fabricated luxuries. This was initially known as the culture of consumption, more recently updated to be called consumerism. The word consumer comes from the Latin consumere, which means to use, burn up, and sometimes to waste or destroy. Is that correct? It is. It's actually um, tuberculosis. What did it used to be called? Consumption. Consumption. And I get to that. You're da, jumping ahead. Da, da. Sorry. Sorry for so knowing it, words and shit. How could, <laughs> how could you? So if you were a consumer, you were at best an eater and at worst a destroyer. It depends on your perspective on such things, I guess, but we all know what Klaus Schwab thinks of us. <laughs> Eat the bugs. <laughs> Live in the pod. Side note. <laughs> Live uh, on the pod. <laughs> That's us live on the pod. <laughs> so yes, consumption was another word for tuberculosis back in the day, referring to the way the disease slowly ate away at the health of the infected. This comparison would not be lost on most people back then, quite the same way it's lost on us today. Along with the mass production of goods, there was a mass production of art, but particularly literature in the form of penny dreadfuls and chapbooks, which were cheap fiction that were easy reading. Up until this point, the idea of making up a story and writing it down was pretty much reserved for Shakespeare and some ancient Greeks and Romans, uh, but those were considered great works and separate from this modern drivel. They, you know, they were epics and not novels, right? Uh, um, uh, uh. 
What? You don't like the epics? What's wrong with no, you? No, no, no. I'm saying there was there. The Middle Ages really had a very, very extensive tradition of the novel. Ah, uh, yes. How could I forget that? How could I forget that? Like the whole the whole King Arthur thing was literally just four generations or four centuries of fan fiction. <laughs> well, but that's like that's like King Arthur, man. It's not like Oliver Twist. Okay, that's fair. Not most that of the okay. most of the topics were of at least in setting a elevated character. Yes, the, this was this is the novel, the cheap novel, the Harlequin romance, all of that stuff was new, mostly. I mean, it's not like there wasn't porn and shit back in Rome and ancient Greece and that sort of thing, but, like, everybody reading these out in the open, like, on the train or in a carriage or on a street corner, this was nothing, this was new because print was faster and cheaper. Um... Yeah, there's so a, that's, there's that's fair. I will I will agree to that. Um, it's actually a really cool medieval um, thing they made called a girdle book. Have you ever seen one? No. So it was a book that, you know, bound in leather, as books were, but the leather didn't just stop at the bottom of the book. It actually then kept going and was sort of had a big knot or weight thing at the end about 12 inches past where the book ended and so you could just tuck that in your uh, your belt or your girdle and so you could be like reading it while you're doing something and then you could just drop it and it just swings down to the side that's awesome those were mostly prayer books I think that might have yeah. been exclusively prayer books but I always thought those were cool just a little belt mounted book well that's perfect for you how do you not have a girdle book I, you know I don't think anyone still makes them. <laughs> I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but you'd have to scroll past some very strange search results to get there. <clears throat> anyway. <clears throat> one thing that was new also in these novels were thorough descriptions of products that the characters used. Descriptions of flavors and smells, particularly in food and other consumables like tobacco and alcohol. Such things were usually not included before. A character might have a feast in an older story, but there would be no in-depth description of, like, how great the food tasted or what dishes were on the table. You would see this pop up later on, uh, and if you picked up a novel from 1850 and a novel from 1950, you would notice the difference immediately. Good example of this, L. Ron Hubbard would do this to basically write more words so he could make more money in his science fiction stories. Because now it wasn't an issue of paper's expensive, it was like, how can we make it look like a long book that people are getting value out of? without wasting time with, you know, B-plots. Uh, yeah, like you know, that. plot or narrative development or any of that crazy or, stuff. No moral instruction. No, we need to talk about what the turkey smelled like. So anyway, these descriptions and world-building elements grew stronger as novels grew more popular and the craft began to be understood. You may have never considered that there was a time when novels were not considered literature. In fact, it wasn't until the early 18th century that novel reading became not only socially acceptable, acceptable, but actually popular. Before that, they were pretty much considered sentimental imagination trips. I mean, like, you're living in reality all the time, and you're, like, sitting there reading your book and crying. Like, nothing hurt you in real life. So how could you, like, possibly cry while reading words on a page about a fake character being afflicted by things that didn't actually happen? Such sentimental nonsense! And of course, um, you know, not to keep referencing those guys, but, uh, Jason and Crow always said something that, that made me uh, 
think a little bit with my noggin as I can do. Basically, they think that the death of Bambi's mom was the point at which Disney knew he had strong control over people's emotions with fake stories about cartoon characters. Which, if you think about it, is pretty horrifying. I mean, because... Uh, well, no, that's like, interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. I was completely and totally unmoved by the death of Bambi's mom as a child. I was You're like... You're a monster! I was like... Come on, man. That's just a dough. Couldn't you have gotten a buck? Weak effort. <laughs> weak. Weak that's, sauce. Only got Bambi's mom. Yeah, that's not going to look good mounted on the wall. Get you some antlers. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so as material wealth increased in these industrial societies, people became even more removed from the realities of the natural world. Starvation, or even mere hunger in some cases, became an idea that they read about in Oliver Twist, or heard about from, you know, fairy stories that their mother told them. But it wasn't real to them in the same way it was to a poor miner who couldn't afford to bring a morsel to work that day. Just as poverty was in fact an idea to the upper class and a reality to former agrarians lost in the industrial shuffle. Now novels might seem a strange thing to fixate on, uh, but it was amidst all this that the really great novels began to be written, or at least the truly well-known. The aforementioned Oliver Twist, for example, was so lucid in its descriptions of poverty that it allowed people to see into a world they didn't know. Charles Dickens himself had worked as a child in a boot-blacking factory before finding his way as a writer and becoming famous. These novels emerged from Britain first, but most Western countries and their colonies around the globe found them relatable because a universal experience of industrial society was arising in many places all at once. Shocking. And let's be honest. Looking at this, why wouldn't the whole world want to industrialize? Industrialization was profitable, good for competition, and produced very sexy products on the cheap. What's not to love? Very quickly, big companies met the demands of their own nations, but in the interest of constant growth, they had to move to exporting their goods to developing areas of the world. India is a great example of this. And let's, uh, let's also look at history and see uh, how, to, how it usually played out when an industrialized society had a war against a non-industrialized society, even among what you would consider relatively developed nations. Like, Spain did not industrialize the way England did, and Spanish Empire was the biggest geopolitical entity in the world at a certain point, and within a not very long period of time, was a complete geopolitical non-entity because its rivals had industrialized and it had not. Yep. It's an arms race. It's an arms race, and uh, the people who didn't get on board with this, they became smaller, smaller influences on the world. Um, so transportation, for example, was not a new concept, but consistent performance was going to be essential in the transport of goods, especially perishables. This meant roads needed to be standardized, railways needed to be functioning well and always in good repair, and waterways needed to be clear. There was something I ran across in researching this called Canal Fever. Have you heard of that? I have not. Where it was like a time when they, they hadn't quite gotten rail systems down, you know, they there weren't a ton of engines going around, so they, people just started building canals everywhere because they could just push it on the waterway and not have to use any of that power. <laughs> Canal fever, can you believe that? 
So there was also piracy or caravan or coach robbery. Um, these were also not new, but they were just beginning to get amplified like everything else in this crazy swell of development. Roads ran down more quickly and weren't wide enough to accommodate everyone and every rolling box that wanted to use them. So it was the, in the best interest of those driving the Industrial Revolution to rebuild those roads better and to also have strong public infrastructure in mind generally. What you were referencing before, of course. They would build libraries and bridges and things. The wealthy people. Um, so you can see, hopefully, how all of this sort of comes together to create what a, a giant machine for machines uh, and the giant machine we live in these days. Transportation relies on communication. Communication relies on transportation. Every part of this machine uses every other part in some form or fashion. And as this grand construction began to get off the ground, the people themselves were figuratively and literally squashed in the process. And so let's go back a little bit. So early on in all this madness, the artisans were the first ones getting left out more and more frequently, to the point where they too had to give up their operations and start working in the factories that replaced them. Nowadays, of course, the idea of hiring someone to make you a set of clothes is extremely unusual, except for you. <laughs> ah, yes, my good friend, my tailor, Naveen. Yes. A hero. Taylor. What did he make for you again? He made the waistcoat for my wedding. Yeah, that was pretty badass. <laughs> but of course, yes, having Naveen make you clothes is unusual. But walking into a Walmart to get an extra, extra large Iron Man t-shirt only costs a few <laughs> bucks. And it may fit poorly, and it's made out of the cheapest possible material, but it's easy. Another side note about Crow, he said on his podcast that we're already wearing our slave clothes, and I don't think he's far off the mark when you look at that a certain way. But I think that's my last reference to him. Uh, in the early days, industries employed production techniques that we would see as inefficient and dangerous for as long as they could until they were forced to upgrade and keep up with the market. Techniques for the production of iron were initially very, shall we say, primitive? For example, the puddling furnace. This was the old process for iron making, and I'm gonna describe it because I couldn't believe what I was reading. So basically, a lot of heat was applied to ore until it melted in a puddle in a big furnace, and there was a guy called the puddler who stood over this extremely hot pool of iron making components with a big stick, stirring it to gather usable iron. The main byproduct of this heating process wasn't just iron, it was also highly unhealthy fumes. Most puddlers, while they could pull out 1,500 kilos of iron in a 12-hour shift, would only be able to do this approximately into their mid-30s when they mostly all died. <laughs> I'm not laughing at it. I am laughing a little bit at the poor puddlers. <laughs> now, what a terrible I, I feel name, ashamed. like, puddlers. Puddler. So now at this point, you might be thinking, gosh, Aaron, this sounds brutal. Why were the nations of the world so obsessed with making this gigantic machine of industry? Didn't they think of the cost? And the answer is largely no. There were a few people who really opposed this transformation. I'm sorry. There were very few people who really opposed this transformation because it sounded totally awesome and it was kind of necessary if you wanted to stay relevant. Um... Plus, until today, death was a fact of life. Somebody died in a factory accident, that's life. People die all the time. Puddler choking up his blood on, in his 30s because he's breathing horrible fumes for the majority of his career comes with the territory. 
But not everybody thought this was a good trade. J.R.R. Tolkien, for example, portrayed industrial society as the <gasps> bad guy in The Lord of the Rings, illustrating this with Saruman's weaponization of Isengard against Fangorn Forest. And I know that's nerd shit, but it's not my fault that Isen means iron and guard means enclosure or fortress. But Tolkien was just one. G.K. Chesterton, Orwell, Huxley, Lewis, and others thought it was eh, a shaky idea at best as well. But unfortunately, they were just writers, and most of them were also extremely late to the party. And hand-wringing about, oh, we, we must protect nature, it wasn't cool, right? Like, back then, it was like, we, get, we got all these cool, like, vehicles and weapons and tools and machines. Like, and but you're saying someone think of the, you know fruit bats in this forest that's being torn down. It's Once just again, not sexy. think about Saruman and Lord of the Rings. Hmm. What about him? Well, just that, that whole complete disregard for the, the world in the interests of more production. Mm -hmm. That is when Tre Treebeard says, you know, he has a mind of metal and gears. Mm-hmm. You know, He's is, caught up it, in the movement. What is it, like... Ha burning, hacking, breaking, biting, gnawing. Tearing. Yeah. Which reminds me a lot of my dad every time we drive past the subdivision. <laughs> what, does he just sound like Treebeard? <laughs> does he wait until you're like four hours past the subdivision before he <laughs> says anything? But yes, many writers were against this because they could think. They could see a little bit into the future and could see that this was a bad idea. But there was one guy who was not late to the, uh, the opposition party. And there was one guy who was not just a writer. And that man was named Ned Ludd. <laughs> you know, this might be a record for how long we've gotten into the show before you've even mentioned the person it's about. As we, are, we are at an hour and 15 minutes, and we finally have mentioned the person it's about. I'm so well, proud. Well, you're going you're gonna to laugh how lazy I was with this, too. So I just literally copied the Wikipedia article. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted to demonstrate what is generally available to the public on uh, Ned Ludd before we actually dig a little deeper. So I, it, I was being lazy. I literally did just copy it, but it's... All that most people will ever know if they ever run into Ned Ludd. So shall I read it? Should, what voice does the Wikipedia article have for Ned Ludd? Is it a soy boy? I was going to say it's probably overconfident, pedantic, increasingly tiresome. I don't know if I can do that without driving myself crazy. There is a loaded firearm in this house. I'm not gonna do soy boy. Let's just do, I don't know. I'll just do whatever comes naturally. Do documentary narrator. Ah, okay, documentary narrator, okay. Um. Mm. Here we see the Luddite in its natural habitat. Oh, I don't know if I could do David Attenborough, but. <laughs> um. Ned Ludd is the legendary person. Nah, it's not gonna happen. Ned Ludd is the legendary, quoting Wikipedia, Ned Ludd is the legendary person to whom the Luddites attributed the name of their movement. Footnote in 1770, one. Footnote one. <laughs> in 1779, Ludd is supposed to have broken two stocking frames in a fit of rage. 
When the Luddites emerged in the 1810s, his identity was appropriated to become the folkloric character of Captain Ludd, also known as King Ludd or General Ludd, the Luddites' alleged leader and founder. Supposedly, Ludd was a weaver from Anstey near Leicester, England. In 1779, after being whipped for idleness or taunted by local youths, he smashed two knitting frames in what was described as a fit of passion. This story can be traced to an article in the Nottingham Review on the 20th of December, 1811, but there is no independent evidence of its veracity. John Blackner's book, History of Nottingham, also published in 1811, provides a variant tale of a lad called Ludlam, who was told by his father, a framework knitter, to square his needles. Ludlam took a hammer and beat them into a heap. News of the incident spread, and whenever frames were sabotaged, people would jokingly say, Ned Ludd did it. Oh, he was the Sam Hyde of his day, huh? He was. <laughs> <laughs> he can't keep getting away with it. <laughs> it's even, you know, single-syllable names. Ned Ludd, Sam Hyde, I'm telling you. I'm there's something you. there's something there man yep is sam that's Hyde all... the ned lud of our generation uh, except it's like terrorism and mass shootings instead of smashing industrial equipment funny you say that we'll get we're gonna get into this all right so this is about all you can find about ned lud without doing some serious digging so i did and the first uh, thing i did was i was just like wikipedia says there's a, a nottingham review article to read in the months surrounding the initial events of the Ned Ludd. To start, I found this article on the Luddite Bicentenary... Bicent... Bicentenary? Yes, Bicentenary blog. On blogspot.com. That's what it's called. Luddite B blog. <laughs> I'm not going to say it again. So here it is. <clears throat> 20th of December, 1811. The origin of Ned Ludd. There are few persons in this part of England who know anything of the history of the stocking frame, and who probably have not heard that it was the invention of William Lee of Calverton, in this county, a student in the University of Cambridge. This gentleman, it is said, being in love with a young lady, found that her incessant occupation in knitting left her no leisure to receive his addresses, and that resentment for slighted love prompted him to invent a machine which should supersede the necessity of knitting. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. He did it for love. At present, a person named Ned Ludd is become more famous by the destruction of this machine than William Lee by its invention. Ned Ludd is not, as many people suppose, an ideal personage but is or lately was an inhabitant, an inhabitant of Anstey near Leicester, where he was apprenticed to learn the art of framework knitting. Ned, being rather averse to the confinement of the frame, did not exert himself to the satisfaction of his master, who complained of him to the magistrate. As remedy, as a remedy for Ned's disorder, the magistrate, it is said, recommended a little whipping. <laughs> uh, just a little one. This, however, was so far from curing the patient that he took the first opportunity of getting a great hammer and entirely demolishing the machine, which he considered as the occasion of his punishment. Can I just be the Hence first the to say, based. <laughs> <laughs> you may be the first to say it. <laughs> 
Hence, the persons who have lately been, uh, lately repeated Ned's operation on a very extended scale in this and the neighboring counties have thought proper to assume his name and conceal their own. Okay. So this is the earliest mention I could find of the man. So far, I've gathered that Ned Ludd himself was pissed off mainly at the work he had to do at his machine. There's no trace of the story being anti-industrial at the outset, just angry. I also dug up some letters written to the Nottingham Review that were signed Ned Ludd, but there's no evidence that it actually was Ned Ludd, suggesting that the man may have been only an anti-industrial meme. Though I think memes have sources, and I think probably Ned Ludd had to be someone, and it was just an amalgamation, perhaps. Yeah, or maybe it I'm, was a real guy. Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm imagining, yeah, like you said, probably not the one who wrote the letters, because the same type of person who gets a great hammer and smashes a machine doesn't really seem like a letter-to-the-editor kind of guy, you know? Wouldn't he be arrested? You know? I mean, it's not easy to run away from the law, um, especially that back then in, like, a small town or wherever. Even a, even a small city, it's hard to get away from. I mean, easier than it is now. Especially if you're making a lot of noise busting shit up, right? True, so, but one would imagine, I could, I could imagine anyway, that he probably had a certain amount of sympathy among the fellows of his class, so to speak, who would probably be less than forthcoming in helping the authorities to apprehend him. And, you know, the days before, uh, radios and cars and police helicopters and stuff. If people didn't want you to find someone who was in their community, it was pretty easy for them to hide him. Yeah, just they just disguised him as a woman. Ah. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's what the dress is. I don't know. Anyway. <clears throat> I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense. It does. It does. And that was a common thing back in the day was just, if you were a criminal, just pretend to be a woman. Um, but, you know, that's less popular these days, in a manner of speaking. <clears throat> Another document I found <clears throat> that wasn't... That, meh, okay, yeah, it is, but it is less popular. People don't do that to escape the law. I've never done it to escape the law. It's beneath my dignity. And now, it's time to bring in our shovel captains and our shovel bearers. This undead army is the foot soldier... Are the foot soldiers of... I don't know how to say this right. They're the undead army. That's why they sound like zombies. So let's bring in our shovel captains, our $10 per month subscription on Patreon or Locals. First of all, we have Eric Olson, who remains strong patron for quite a long time now. And we have Jeremy. Jeremy has also been a patron since sometime last year, and he's still holding on. Thank you, Eric and Jeremy, for leading our shovel bearers to victory. And now it's time to talk about the shovel bearer army itself. We have Cody, Zach, Sarah and my buddy Mark Steves. Of course, I contribute back to his show, so it feels a little weird. I just like the guy, so I have to say his name. Mark Steves is on board. He's in the Undead Army. He is a shovel bearer. He is bearing his weapon with. Well, I mean, you're all you're all very impressive. I mean, it's kind of crazy to look out and see um, five. Wait, actually, I just remembered something. We have one more shovel bearer, and the reason I don't know is because I'm not looking at it. 
on locals. Bross is over there on locals, standing alone as the one shovel bearer who's contributing through that platform. Everything is appreciated, everybody. I love all of it. It doesn't sound like much, but it means a lot to me. So please hang in there. And if you're considering supporting the show, $5 a month, it's like you're buying me a really fancy cup of coffee. And while I can't sit down with you and have that coffee, I will spiritually, next time I drink a almond milk latte or whatever the hell weird thing I get at the coffee shop anymore, I will be thinking of you. That's four coffees a month. That's about all I drink now. (laughs) And at last, it's our final tier. The lowest, lowest tier, but that doesn't mean the least liked. I actually love this tier because it's really funny. We have to bring out the ferryman because we are doing our pay the ferryman tier. Paying the ferryman is really easy. It's two bucks a month. It's basically, you know, dropping me a tip for the coffee. It's paying for the tip for the coffee that the shovel bearers bought me. Okay, that's what they're doing. And I love it because the $2 level represents the two coins we put on the dead uh, on their eyes as they cross the river Styx. And we have two paying the ferryman currently. Ellen and IDG, which is a slightly intimidating name, and I don't know why. Um, but I like it. And we're glad to have them around. And Obras actually upgraded from paying the ferryman when he went over to locals. He took those two coins right off his eyes, jumped out of the boat, and said, Nope, I'm going to give more money to We Talk About Dead People by donating on locals. And we appreciate him for that. But this isn't his tier. This is pay the ferryman. Thank you, all of you who contribute to the show. The Venmo tips are received, and we'll do a call-out for those a little later on. I think there's only one this month, but yes. Much enthusiasm for the entire undead army from the Time Monarchs, the Lore Keepers, the Shovel Captains, Shovel Bearers, and those who are simply riding the boat down the lazy river of sticks. And now it's time for our Venmo tips. We got one from Glenn... Yeah, <laughs> we got we got one from Glenn who sent us $10 and said top five, which is awesome. And then we got one from Tim, $15. He said, appreciate your effort and entertainment. Enjoy learning some extra and forgotten details of history. We love these little notes. If you don't feel like joining in on the fun with a subscription, which, you know, we love, we love subscriptions, but we love tips too. You can always send us a Venmo tip. Uh, and uh, I think you can also tip us on locals if you prefer that as well. So appreciate it. That's at WTADP, at WTADP. I'm so jittery today. I don't get why. Yes, any amount is appreciated and goes directly to supporting the show um, and feeding our faces. Someone uh, specifically bought us a sandwich. Oh, yeah, that was Tim. <laughs> Tim, we're buying a sandwich. Thank you, brother. Anyway, so I found another document. <clears throat> excuse me, in the Home Office National Archive. This document is H-O, or HO, (laughs) 52-8-213, folios 493-496, through which is a letter written by a magistrate called Haywick. This letter was written 19 years after the first Ned Ludd article in the Nottingham Review. In this letter, Haywick describes a burgeoning movement of hundreds of workers in his region destroying their industrial equipment and burning down the houses of the people who owned them. Sawyers and textile workers are named specifically. And throughout this letter, Haywick references the importance of secrecy in this letter because he fears that his own house will be, will be burned down if it is discovered he is asking for help. 
He also uses another word I didn't expect to read in a letter that old. Terrorism. Hmm. Interesting. I know. It is interesting. What? <laughs> I didn't say anything. No, I, just, I didn't know the term had that valence that far back. I didn't either. So when I was reading through, the, you know, and it was in cursive and old-fashioned writing, and you can go look it up. That reference is legit. It's in the Home Office National Archive. So ChatGPT didn't make up that reference? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally looking for any paper or document scan that I could find of any of the letters Ned Ludd allegedly wrote, and I, I could only track down articles about them. I couldn't find the actual letters. So it was, you know... I mean, if they were written on scraps of paper, I don't think they would have necessarily been preserved. But, I don't know. I Honestly, to be perfectly honest, I don't know how to search ar archives very well. So, bear with me. This is what I could pull out of the internet. So what I learned about reading from reading about Ned Ludd was the same thing I learned about reading about William Tell. Sort of. Not, not perfectly. It didn't actually matter if he existed. The story was what had the power and enough power to continue for at least 19 years after the first mention of Ned Ludd anywhere. People would burn things down and etch Ned Ludd was here or leave behind more letters signed by General Ludd. Ned Ludd was, for all intents and purposes, an anti-industrialist meme. The name was associated with workers' wages, specifically those in textiles, as well as a revolutionary story about destroying industry altogether, or throwing off the chains of the oppressors, or bringing about a revolution in England similar to the French Revolution. This is a thing, the thing about a historical meme. It can be leveraged for lots of different functions. But Ned Ludd the meme holds some truth to it for a lot of people who have a lot of ideas about how to, sol how to solve the problems of the overworked, underpaid, and forgotten of the industrialized world. If he existed, Ned Ludd may not have been an anti-industrial personally, anti-industrialist personally, uh, but he certainly became the face of anti-industry. So let's compare the Ned Ludd meme to the, one of the world's most famous Luddites. I'll hold off on naming him for now and simply read some of his words. I think I know where this is going. You do know where this is going, and if the, lead, if the listeners have been with us for long enough, they'll know who I'm reading. But I'll just save the surprise for the end for those of you who haven't done this digging before. <clears throat> Here we go. As society and the problems that face it become more and more complex, and as machines become more and more intelligent, people will let machines make more and more of their decisions for them, simply because machine-made decisions will bring better results than man-made ones. Eventually, a stage may be reached at which the decisions necessary to keep the system running will be so complex that human beings will be incapable of making them intelligently. At that stage, the machines will be in effective control. People won't be able to just turn the machine off because they will be so dependent on them that turning them off would amount to suicide. On the other hand, it is possible that human control over the machines may be retained. In that case, the average man may have control over certain private machines of his own, such as his car or his personal computer. But control over large systems of machines will be in the hands of a tiny elite, just as it is today, but with two differences. Due to improved techniques, the elite will have greater control over the masses, and because human work will no longer be necessary, the masses will be superfluous, a useless burden on the system. If the elite is ruthless, they may simply decide to exterminate the mass of humanity. If they are humane, they may use propaganda or other psychological or biological techniques to reduce the birth rate until the mass of humanity becomes extinct, leaving the world to the elite. I love how that's the humane option. Right. Sounds... 
eerily familiar. <clears throat> or, if the elite consists of soft-hearted liberals, they may decide to play the role of good shepherds to the rest of the human race. They will see to it that everyone's physical needs are satisfied, that all children are raised under psychologically hygienic conditions, that everyone has a wholesome podcast, <clears throat> I mean hobby, to keep him busy, and that anyone who may become dissatisfied undergoes quote-unquote treatment to cure his quote-unquote problem. Of course, life will be so purposeless that people will have to be biologically or psychologically engineered, either to remove their need for the power process or make them sublimate their drive for power into some harmless hobby. These engineered human beings may be happy in such a society, but they most certainly will not be free. They will have been reduced to the status of domestic animals. One can envision scenarios that incorporate aspects of more than one of the possibilities that we have just discussed. For instance, it may be that machines will take over most of the work that is of real practical importance, but that human beings will be kept busy by being given relatively unimportant work. It has been suggested, for example, that a great development of the service industries might provide work for human beings. Thus, people would spend their time shining each other's shoes, driving each other around in taxicabs, making handicrafts of one, for one another, waiting on each other's tables, etc. This seems to us a thoroughly contemptible way for the human race to end up, and we doubt that many people would find fulfilling lives in such pointless busywork. They would seek other dangerous outlets, drugs, crime, cults, hate groups, unless they were biologically or psychologically engineered to adapt them to such a way of life. This was, of course, written in 1995 by the eco-terrorist Ted Kaczynski. And I think it rings true because it is true! But we all have different ideas about how to fix this, right? A lot of people just want to burn it all down, like many of the Luddites attempted to do. Some people just wanted fair wages and to continue working without worry about financial security, so they staged protests where they held up signs and sent letters, many of which I read uh, in my research in the Nottingham Review. The demands are not unreasonable. <laughs> it's like, okay, we'll, we'll work for you, but can we have, like, breaks and lunch? And can you pay us enough to, like, not have to do this for 15 hours a day? Sounds like an Amazon warehouse. It, um, dude, well, I mean, the Amazon warehouse now has a hug box or a... <laughs> What 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 is it? It's like a special place to hide when you're when you're anxious or something. Having your schedule mandated seven minute emotional breakdown. Did I tell you on on the last talk we did just a couple days ago about the turnover rate at the warehouse I worked in? No. Oh my gosh, this is interesting. Uh, so I I can't say too much, but I can say that on exit interviews there were uh. There was one the try to guess the number one reason people quit. Between twenty and twenty-eight years old, the demographic the demographic we're trying to get because they have strong young bodies and they can do hard things. I don't number know. Number one reason they quit. I don't know. The noise. Really? Mm-hmm. They couldn't handle it. It triggered their anxiety. It's a very different world we're living in. But um, for one reason or another, it took forever. It was like, it was like, um, it was like incredibly slow going to try and make things fair for the workers. Um, you know, they, there were some demands for like more safety, demands for better hours, better wages, guarantees by the company, 
not having to pay for their own oil for their and rent their own lantern to go down in the mine, like simple asks like this. Um, and in the meantime, between articles about the Luddites breaking looms and burning down the houses of wealthy industrialists, you're reading snippets about suicides in the era or workers dying in mining accidents. To get an idea of how dangerous and difficult these conditions were, go to mineaccidents.com and do a little reading. If you want a particularly awful story, one so bad it shocked the literal Queen of England into taking action to better the conditions of mine workers, look up the Huskar Pit disaster. It's awful. And here's a picture of one of their laborers. I think one of the ones who died. That is a small child. That's Look how like, young that child is. That's like a six-year-old. If that, dude. That's, I mean, that, drowned in a mine. Anyway. <clears throat> There's just a few more things I want to say before we wrap up. The Industrial Revolutions are called revolutions because they were seen as just as disastrous as the French Revolution by many, but they brought out of humanity a technological leap so seriously unbeatable we realized it was here to stay and basically tried to mellow out the consequences for a few hundred years. The Industrial Revolution as a category of events was a technological cataclysm. It is usually framed as progress with the required nods toward child laborers and the rationalization of the darkness of it as necessary to get us to where we are today and don't get me wrong i love the convenience the cool gadgets i love podcasting and there's no way that would be a thing without these events of history but we shouldn't forget what it costs both in human life and in the way we actually live life in the modern world i'm pretty sure most people weren't on antidepressants during the agricultural revolution i mean they were probably pretty stressed out sometimes, but it wasn't the same kind of I'm getting squished in a mechanical machine kind of feeling. What's more is we shouldn't allow things to get as bad as Uncle Ted predicted uh, they would, even though we're 98% of the way there right now. <laughs> we shouldn't be so attached to our electronic toys that we let them control us, all things in moderation. Maybe humanity can learn to balance itself with this technological dystopia we're descending into. Maybe we can retain the good it can bring by not overindulging, by practicing some self-control and shutting it all down for a little bit. Quiet. It's good for you. And hell, if that doesn't work, you can always mail a bomb to an oil man if that makes you feel better. It won't make a lick of difference, but at least you won't have to worry about rent for the rest of your life. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's easy to get black-pilled about technology, especially when it's so abused by the ruling class to literally brainwash and poison us and our friends and family. But maybe it's up to us to simply reject the greatest of their offers, the offer to be a totally dependent subject of a world state powered by virtue-signaling platitudes assigned to us by a committee of literal nimrods while eating a steady diet of soy drinks, bug bars, and fluoride. Maybe instead of destroying the looms, we simply look at them and say, we learned our lesson, and walk away. Maybe when the world comes, calms down, we'll learn that replacing people with machines is a mistake, that ChatGPT is better left as just a curiosity. After all, it can't create anything new. It can only aggregate what we humans have already done. So sure, the human race may have summoned a gargantuan Saturnian, Saturnian automaton controlled by a grimoire's worth of fifth-dimensional never-dwells, but we don't have to be stupid and say it. Great trick, take everything I have. So, I will leave you with an old Buddhist saying to protect your soul in this jagged jungle of concrete and rebar in this Iron Age. It's easier to wear shoes than pave the world.
at least until the industrialists run out of pavement contracts. Then they'll just trigger Tesla's earthquake machine and start it all over again. <laughs> How was that for a wrap up? <laughs> wow, that was that was quite the that was quite the finale. Yep, all that so I could butcher a Buddhist saying. It's technically it's easier to it's easier to wear shoes than leather the world, but I picked pave because that felt more on theme. Makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, we're here at the end of this of what I have written. I mean, it feels like there's a much larger discussion, but I don't want to drag you into it if you don't feel like having it. Well, we are also approaching the two-hour point by the time we wrap That's true. up, so we we shouldn't probably take too long. But no, that was. For the fact that we only spent 5% of the time talking about the topic of the the, the show, I've got to say, you pulled it off. Well, thanks. And I feel like, um, you know, my style of doing this stuff is to paint with a very broad brush um, and to give people a a sense of what it is we're looking at as far as, like, the movement of history is in a certain topic. And I think you're a lot better at being doing detailed work in you know, really getting down to the nitty gritty, but also you have a lot more memes in yours, which I like. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's time for us to step back and, uh, get off the computer and go hang out in nature or something. (laughs) I'm going to go destroy my computer immediately after this episode. Well, and well, I don't think we should take the stairs again. (laughs) Because <laughs> I've already got my 30 steps in, and uh, the elevator's right there just tempting me with its buttons and lights. You, you've already earned your weekly health and fitness bonus for logging enough steps that your employer can view? Yes. I, yes. <laughs> so I can get my $50 bonus per year for walking a certain amount of steps, yes. <laughs> well, shall we head to the surface of taking the elevator and completely forgetting what we just talked about for nearly two hours? Absolutely. I'll just go drink myself into oblivion. (laughs) Good lord. All right. So, Aaron, if you had to destroy one piece of technology permanently, what would it be and why? Hmm... The easy one is the smartphone, but now you got to think bigger. I'm thinking bigger. I'm thinking like clown. How do we stop clown world? And maybe I would just destroy social media or the large Hadron Collider because that's where the demons are coming in through. That is true. Let's destroy the large Hadron Collider. That's my answer. What about you? If you had to destroy one piece of technology permanently, what would it be and why? Hmm. I don't know. Probably the printing press. Yeah? Yeah. Because without the ability to quickly print lots of things, none of the uh, sort of industrialization can happen. You can't... It's just not the same filling out your time card on vellum, you know? Um, Yeah. (laughs) With your quill pen. Um, It's sort of the predicate for so much. And just from my perspective as as a historian... It's when people started writing crap is when it became really easy and cheap to write and publish things. Back in the day, you had to put in the work if you wanted to publish something. It had to be real. And 
it's not all great, but it had to be something of substance. Once any anything you wrote down could easily be turned into 10,000 copies, you just started getting crap. Yeah, well, that's Twitter. <laughs> so, by extension, destroying the printing press would destroy Twitter. Yes. And the Large Hadron Collider, and all of it, actually. I think you thought about this harder than I did. You know what, maybe... Maybe we could take it a step further and actually just go to writing. <laughs> Oral culture was so much cooler. People had memories. They could Everything was remembered, and memory was the source of knowledge instead of written stuff. Yeah, I should have had this entire thing memorized instead of reading from a not script. If you lived in a world without writing and literacy, you would have. Incredible. Well, so, yeah. on that note, I th I think it's time. No, do you have more? No, I was just going to say, yeah, just food for thought. Food for thought, indeed. And uh, <laughs> Little Caesar's crazy bread for thought. There you go. There you go. Bra looping it back in. I like how you think. And on that note, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably an industrialist. So consider funding our stupid little show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, we're also on Locals! And you can also drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at W-T-A-D-P. Everything is appreciated, and it greases our gears or grooves or whatever. It keeps the show moving along. And now that George is done getting married... Um, I think we're going to be doing more, which is great. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of wild nature play you out.
Splash out. 